You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest, an expert in Ayurveda, Dr. Mark Halperin. I've known him for decades. He's one of the, uh, you know, one of the original Ayurvedic uh, practitioners and experts in America. Um, he's the founder of the very famous uh, California College of Ayurveda. He's also the president of that. He's the one of the founders of the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, which we served on the board together many, many years ago. Uh, he's also the founder of the California uh, Association of Ayurvedic Medicine. Uh, we served on that board together many, many years ago. He's also on the, the National Council of Ayurvedic Education. He's probably one of the absolutely the, the leading expert in Ayurvedic education in America, or at least one of them, and uh, someone you should definitely know about. Definitely tune into his college, the California College of Ayurvedic Medicine, if you're interested in learning Ayurveda. It's a great, great college. He's been doing it for decades. He's also the author of a handful of books, one called uh, What Textbook called Healing Your Life. Another textbook called The Principle of Ayurvedic Medicine, and that is a textbook for Ayurvedic professionals. Um, he's also done an audio series on Yoga Nitra and self-healing, which we might talk a little bit about today. And, uh, and he's been on so many publications, been interviewed by 60 Minutes, uh, by Mike Wallace. He's been on, written up in LA, the Los Angeles Times, New York Times. Um, he's done an amazing thing for Ayurvedic medicine. He just keeps forging ahead, trying to just educate, educate, educate people in Ayurveda. That's what we want to do today in this podcast is educate people more and more about Ayurveda. Mark, great to see you. Welcome. John, thank you so much. That was a beautiful introduction. I'm humbled by it and uh, really an honor to spend this time with you. You, you two have done so much to bring Ayurveda to the world and and this podcast is a wonderful vehicle for that and I thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, long overdue, Mark. Um, you know, let's just dive right in. You know, we well, off off air. We were just talking just a little bit about the times we live in. You know, COVID, being people being fatigued by COVID, and you mentioned something that I thought would be a great intro to Ayurveda and why everybody really you know, should, or at least, you know, I think I understand why people are more interested in Ayurveda now more than ever, because you said something I thought was really interesting. You said people are leaving the workforce, which is like crazy. People can't get, no one's, companies can't hire, uh, manufacturing is, is like stalled. It's because people are looking for meaning in their life. And explain how that relates to Ayurveda for me. You know, I think people are having an existential crisis right now. They're asking themselves, well, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing while I'm here? And, and the COVID crisis has caused everybody to look deep inside. It, 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 it crashed the model of living that most people were experiencing. And now everybody's trying to reboot. And while they're trying to reboot, they're asking a lot of questions, questions that they never would have asked when they were on the track that they were on before because they weren't thinking about it. And they're rethinking, what do I want to do? Who am I? What's going to give my life meaning? And, and I think that is, is so very important. People are, are naturally now in an empty space and space creates confusion and they don't know how to move forward. And the principles of Ayurveda and the principles of yoga 
I think are really well suited to help all of these individuals. The, the principles of yoga really brings us back to the understanding of who am I and, and why am I here? And from a yogic perspective, we're here to be of service. We're here to allow the divine inspiration to move through us and to listen deeply within and find that inner meaning and to remember, remember at the core who we are. And I think I think that's part of what's happening right now is people were lost in what we call in yoga, the Maya, in the illusion. The illusion was shattered. And now here we are today with an opportunity to return to the memory of who we are. And that memory then sparks the question, well, what do I want to do with who I am? And Ayurveda gives us the opportunity to remain grounded. Ayurveda is the practical aspects of yoga. It's how we live our lives. How do I remain grounded? How do I remain healthy? How do I remain solid and whole in the world? And I think that is the other part that is extremely important today and that people are really looking at. They're looking at their lifestyle the way it was before. And they're saying, you know what? There was something not quite right about that. There was something crazy about that lifestyle. And Ayurveda is almost like an instructional handbook that says, Here's how you can live in a manner that is sustainable. Here's how you can live in a manner that will support you to remember who you really are at a heart level. And I think that is so very important. It's what's been missing in society. You know, people think that what's been happening right now is some, some sudden uh, occurrence because of COVID. But really, I believe that it's something that has been building up for many, many decades as society has found itself getting lost in the illusion the illusion of materialism, the illusion of uh, power, the illusion of, 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 no, I think corruption plays a role in it as well. People have lost faith in all of that and the structures of the world have collapsed. And that is a new opportunity. It's actually a really beautiful opportunity to refine ourselves and redefine how we wanna live in this world. Boy, you know, I hope people are really tuning into what you said because it's so, so true. I wrote an article about the uh, Charaka's take, the Ayurvedic textbooks take on epidemics. And as you know, the very first, you know, they, they start the, dis the discourse where corrupt, that the epidemics start from corruption at the highest heads of state. And then it filters down to the merchants and they start taking, you know, shortcuts and then it creates corruption all the way through. It affects the the, the quality of the air we breathe because we pollute in the name of corruption. The water is not palatable to drink. That affects the, the quality of the soil which we grow our foods. It affects the, the, the timeliness of the seasons and the rains become excessive and the droughts become excessive. And they tapped into this thing 2,500 years ago when Charaka was written. They said, this is what causes an epidemic. It causes from corruption, just exactly what you said. It all starts from corruption and slowly but surely we lose, like you said, the truth. We, we get locked into the illusion and then we spend the rest of our life trying to maximize that illusion with more dopamine, more, more reward chemistry, and we lose what we know to be the key to Ayurveda and yoga therapies is self-awareness, right? Becoming more self-aware. And we're not gonna ever be self-aware if we're completely addicted to the, the uh, constant rajasic and tamasic stimulation of the outside world. And I think at some point we gotta start you know, shining a light in, in, into our inner space and exploring that because uh, I really feel like we're, we're, this is a great kind of question for you. 
I feel like, and I think about this a lot, we have this technology, which isn't going to go away. And it's becoming more fascinating and we're becoming more putting more of the eggs in the basket of technology to feed us and reward us and make us satisfied in our life and we're becoming less and less attached to doing the work to do the inner work the yoga the breathing the practices the things that will actually make us more self-aware and give us you know a level of peace and calm and contentment that we could only get from going within and i feel like it's a like what we're in this crazy time and if i had to put my money on it i hate to say it but i'm betting i probably have to bet on technology you know because it's harder to do that inner work you know you know i think that that technology is going to play a role it, it can't be be you can't put that genie back in the bottle it, it i think society as a whole has always been an influence on the masses, but the heart of the masses has always been found through spirituality. It's always been found through family. It's been found through, through people's connection to various spiritual teachings. There's always been a division between the inner world and the external world. And when we put our attention on the external world, it, it, it invariably leads us astray and, and it leads us astray almost to the point of a purpose. And the purpose is for us to give up on it so that we go back to the inner world, which is the only world that we can really control. If we bring our attention outside into all of the drama, all of the power, all of the money, all of the, the, the entertainment, all of the, the fantasy, uh, it'll, it'll give us highs. It's going to give us lows, but we get exhausted from that drama. And eventually we go inside and inside is where you find family inside is where you find community inside is where you find spirituality and it's where you find yourself. And it's that which leads you to yourself that is ultimately going to lead to contentment. And Ayurveda provides the foundation for that through the balance of physiology, through the building of ojas, so that you can sustain your awareness. And that's why yoga and Ayurveda are so intimately connected with each other. And you really can't practice one without the other successfully, because if you want to sustain your awareness, you have to live harmoniously. That's the role of Ayurveda. If you want to build that awareness, that's the role of yoga. But without Ayurveda, that awareness will dissipate. And uh, or yeah, without Ayurveda, that awareness will, will, will dissipate because it won't have a, a structural foundation to stand upon. And so this really is, is what I think we're finding right now. I think this is an incredible opportunity for practitioners of Ayurveda, practitioners of yoga to become leaders, guiding people back to themselves, guiding people back to a sustainable lifestyle. And I think that people are, are wanting that. And that's why we're in the worker crisis that we are right now, because people are not feeling the connection. They're not feeling the purpose that's there. And so we need somebody to step forward. And I believe those individuals are the teachers. And there's teachers from many spiritual traditions and they're needed now more than ever. And there are teachers from many lifestyle traditions and they're needed more than ever today so so i love this you know ayurveda is really um you know the system of medicine and lifestyle as, as is yoga um to bring us back to ourselves so can you explain to me from that perspective you know what is ayurveda and how can folks start to use ayurveda to do exactly what you said is to to kind of rediscover their self you know the first question 
of Ayurveda really is, uh, who am I? This is the first question of Ayurveda, and every Ayurvedic practitioner helps you to understand who you are on a physical and emotional and a spiritual level, or the level of consciousness, we could say. And Ayurveda uses the term prakriti, which means your original creation, which is really who you were before you got caught up in the drama of life. And the goal is to return you to your constitution or your prakriti, to who you were before you got caught up in the drama of life. And that person was a person in a state of balance. And so the instructions of Ayurveda are all about how to return to balance. That's really what it is. And that's physiological balance. It's, you know, there are, there are different questions or different answers for who am I? There's who am I from the yogic perspective, which is the highest spiritual perspective. Who I am is a divine being. Who I am is an incarnation of the divine essence in a physical body. But there's who am I from a physical perspective. And Ayurveda answers that is you are your constitution. You're that balance of energy that you were incarnated with. And then the moment you were incarnated, you started to get influenced by your environment. First, it was in utero, then it was as a child. So you're influenced through diet, you're influenced through uh, your overall lifestyle, and it disturbs the physiology of your body. So the instructions of Ayurveda, which is really all it is, it's a series of instructions for how to return to a balanced, harmonious state of physiology, how to reestablish homeostasis. And once you do that, you optimize the health and the balance of your body. Your body functions better. When your body is functioning better, when your physiology is functioning better, it's not only on a physical level, but a more subtle physical level, which is what we would call the mind. So the mind is a more subtle physiology. And when you're living harmoniously, your body and your mind are functioning well. And so you're experiencing optimal health and you're able to sustain peace of mind. But what's interesting about Ayurveda is that it understands that you can only do that. You can only achieve that if you also have a connection to your deeper self, that if you only, you can only sustain it if you have a connection to that which is greater than yourself. And Ayurveda allows you to find that connection in any form that is special to you. So that spiritual connection can come from any tradition. It can come from a traditional yogic Hindu perspective, or it can come from a Native American or a Judeo-Christian perspective. But you have to have that spiritual connection in order to sustain the ability to live harmoniously in the world. And I think that's something worth examining because along with the breakdown of society and the loss of confidence in our institutions has also come a loss of confidence in our spiritual institutions, which I think plays a role in what we're having, what we're experiencing today. There's a loss of confidence in uh, the church, in the temples, because of corruption, because there is corruption even on the spiritual level, and people are lost in, in their connectedness to everyone else. And so when we lose that connection, well, what's natural is all I then begin to care about is me. And everybody starts to care about themselves and it becomes an extraordinarily selfish world because we've lost that interconnectedness. And so Ayurveda is a body-mind consciousness understanding of who we are. It's how we relate to the world around us. And so it begins with the idea of how can I establish health again? How will that physical health support my mental health? And in order to sustain that, I also have to have spiritual health. I have to have a positive connection with that that is greater than myself.
So can you connect the mechanisms for us between how a lack of the access to the spiritual self, let's say, has a direct impact on the physical health, our physical body, and then take us from there to the mental health? Because you kind of went through that amazingly quickly. And, and, uh, and I love the idea how all this is leading to everybody becoming selfish at the end of the day. And that's what we see today. People are all about themselves and what they need and forget about, you know, the rest of the folks. And that's, you know, that's interesting, like the whole pandemic thing and the whole vaccination thing seems like a no brainer to me. I'm not a big vax person and not a believer in everything Western medicine, but I, but I am a believer that this is a pandemic. And if I'm a carrier of this, you know, virus and I could help or injure somebody without realizing it, then I'm gonna, and I can get a vaccine to make sure that I don't do that. I'm gonna do that because I care about my fellow neighbor. I would hate to be the person to infect somebody else. As much as I'm not the first one to line up and go, yeah, give me the vaccine. I love everything medical, you know, but I feel like this is a different situation. This is a, this is a situation where we have to really care about the others. And I want you to describe for us how we go from lack of self to physical imbalance to mental selfishness, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look at it as a story. Okay, let's just take it from the very, very beginning. And we can say, we, we can look at it this way. In the beginning, a person gets incarnated, right? So we come into this world. And Ayurveda and its sister science yoga both teach that when that occurs, a person will naturally forget their true nature of spirit. They're going to need to forget that because, well, we're in the world and we're going to have to engage the world. And so the very first thing that happens is we do forget our true nature as spirit. And we, we are now in this physical body and every child understands that, every newborn understands that. All of a sudden it realizes, hey, I'm in this body, I'm hungry, I'm gonna cry because I want some food because I need that. And there's a level of selfishness that occurs right from the moment of incarnation. It's embedded in us because, hey, I have to survive because now I've, I'm in this world. Now, when that happens, Ayurveda then teaches that it's this sense of individuality that is going to engage the mind. And the mind is going to now get caught up in the drama of individuality. And with that comes the drama of time. And so we're now engaged in the physical world. The idea is that before we're incarnated, we're in a place outside of time, outside of space. We're in some liminal place that we all struggle to understand. But then we come into a body. And here we are in this body where we're now in the world of time and the mind begins to engage the dramas. And this makes us forget even more because the more the mind starts to work, the more we forget. Now, what happens is the mind has a lot to process. And when the mind starts to process everything, it starts to get confused. Well, what is it that I really need in order to be healthy? And I start to to think that maybe what I really need is that which is gonna give me pleasure. And so I'm just going to start pursuing what's gonna give me pleasure and I wanna avoid everything that's gonna cause suffering. And so the mind starts getting engaged in this drama real deeply and the intellect starts to fail. And, and when the intellect starts to fail us, we start making poor choices. And these poor choices cause us to misuse our senses. And so we start acting in the world in a way 
that is disharmonious to us, to our own physiology. I start craving something that's going to give me pleasure. And I use my sense to eat lots of cake and cookies and ice cream. And before you know it, my physiology is disturbed in a way that now I have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, I'm obese, and so on and so forth. And it all began because, well, I forgot my true nature. I got caught up in the dramas of the world. I made poor choices because all I was interested in was the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of suffering. And hey, let's, let's face it, ice cream brings more pleasure than asparagus does. So I'm going to choose ice cream. And when I keep making those choices over and over again, my physiology gets disturbed and it gets disturbed from an Ayurvedic perspective, first in the digestive system and the gut, gut health starts to fall apart. And then Ayurveda says it spreads from the digestive system to the other systems of the body. And before you know it, you have respiratory disease, you have cardiovascular disease, urinary disease, cancers, and so on and so forth. Now, all of this then cycles back to it because it becomes more fodder for drama. Now I've got the drama of my poor health and now my mind gets absorbed in that. And so the mind is getting disturbed through this whole process as well. And so disease begins really at the level of consciousness when we forget our true nature is spirit. It then impacts the mind as we start getting caught up in the dramas of the world. As it impacts the mind and we get caught up in the dramas of the world, we can no longer hear and listen to the deeper voice of truth inside ourselves, which we can call the voice of our soul or the whispers of our soul. The whispers of our soul are always trying to guide us toward the choices that will bring about optimal health, peace of mind and well-being. But the dramas of the world, the sensory world is so loud that it drowns out the inner wisdom, the whispers of our soul that speaks to us through our heart. We can't hear it. And now what do we do? We just follow the guidance of our senses, which are really agents of our egoic mind, which are pursuing pleasure. And we do that and it inv invariably leads us into a place of disharmony. Now, if we cultivate our spiritual life, if we cultivate the ability to listen within, no matter how you do that, whether you do it through yoga, which is a beautiful, a pathway for doing that, or you find it through studying the Quran, or you find it through studying uh, the Talmud. If you find your way back to the divine essence and you put your attention there, it invariably leads you to listen more closely to your heart. And it makes the voice of the heart louder, and it makes the noise of the mind quieter. In that quietness, we start to remember our true nature as spirit. And when we do all of that, we start making healthier choices in our lives. And so those choices in our lives are everything from what kind of work do I want to do? How do I want to do that work? How do I want to eat? What food do I want to eat? What is going to sustain me? Not because of a selfish desire I have to, to just be alive and party more and take more vacations and live as long as possible, but rather, how can I be healthy and live a sustainable life so I can do the work that I'm feeling inside is in alignment with my connection to the divine. And that comes through my spiritual practices. And so now the service that I wanna perform in this world is in alignment. It's an alignment with the spirit. And the word for that in yoga, the word for that in Ayurveda is Dharma. 
And so when we're doing the work that is in alignment with the divine, we're living our dharma. We are, we are meeting our purpose, our reason for being here, the talents that we have that are innate within us. And when we're doing that, there is a joy in every action that we perform. And it's that joy that gives meaning to life. And it's that joy that has been absent in individuals now for, for decades. And the disturbances of the world, the corruption of the world has caused people to be in such a state of forgetfulness that they feel lost. And this pandemic has caused this existential crisis because it caused the system to crash. And now people are re-questioning, oh my gosh, how did I get in this mess? And now they need a way to get out of it. And Ayurveda and yoga really do provide a pathway to get out of the mess that we're in for each individual. Hmm. Yeah, you so eloquently just described what Ayurveda calls the Purush Arthas, which is the four aims of life, which really means uh, Purush being the soul and Arthas means for the purpose of. So they really describe, right, the four, that the purpose of life is really for the purpose of the soul. And you go through pleasure, as you talked about, and how that has to be done at, uh, you have to understand pleasure from the perspective of connecting, uh, you know, at a heart to heart level, not getting reward and pleasure and, and uh, you know, reward from the other person, but actually giving uh, at a really deep level, having that real heart to heart connection. And the next one is, of course, Artha, which is wealth, but learning how to not to be attached to the fruits of your actions. Of course, you need money and a roof over your head, but we have to learn how not to be attached to those fruits. And the next one is, is Dharma, and you so beautifully said, it's really Dharma is not the job you have. It's the, it's the whatever you do in alignment with spirit. And then you have get into moksha. And I, and, and I, I bring that up because, you know, the Purusha Arthas, the four aims of life in Ayurveda are for the purpose of the soul. This is an interesting kind of idea. A lot of people think Ayurveda is for the body, right? Just fix your body, a heartburn, indigestion, fix me up. But what you're saying is it's way more than just for the body. Everything you're talking about is connecting to the self. As we originally forget the true nature of spirit, we have to somewhere along the way remember. Is it possible? And Ayurveda talks a lot about immortality. And my take on that is that it's not like we're going to live this in this body forever. But the part of us that is immortal is our soul. That's the immortal part. And, and I want to hear your take on the idea that, that Ayurveda and Vedic sciences give us the tools, the instructions, as you say, to become realized passengers on this journey of the soul, that we may forget our true nature of spirit coming into this world, but the whole purpose of life in a way, is, as they say in the four aims, is to remember the, 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 our nature, our true nature as spirit. And to become a realized passenger on this journey of the souls, it doesn't have to be a veil that, that, that blinds us from the truth, the immortality of us forever. We can use this physical body uh, as an instrument for perceiving subtle energy and becoming aware of things that, um, that uh, will really fill us up at a level that, is, that, that will never let us down, where that job that we had that you know, just burned us out and now we're going and making this the, the the employer rich and and they're struggling with diseases and trying to pay medical costs that there's a level of contentment that is available to us through the real understanding of ayurveda 
the whole understanding, I think that's why you and I got so fascinated by it, because it's not just like you fix your body. It's so much more profound than that. But talk to me about, about is, that, is that a fair assessment that, that Ayurveda and Vedic sciences are really about mm. you know, refining this human instrument so you can perceive this little energy and, and experience the self, the spirit, in a way that, um, that we were designed? Well, yes, absolutely, that is true. And the way I look at it, John, and I think the way that a lot of people do who understand uh, the science of Ayurveda is that it's the healing side of yoga. And so yoga and Ayurveda are intertwined together. And, and I like to say that as you progress down the path of one of these, you will invariably intersect the other. So if you start in the world of yoga, you're going to eventually intersect Ayurveda. If you start in the world of Ayurveda, you're going to intersect yoga together they're a complete understanding of body mind and consciousness they can't really be separated as a person develops themselves on any one of these paths whether you start in yoga and you start with with doing asanas and you start doing breathing practices and uh, doing doing some of the yogic insight work or you start in ayurveda and you start with well what do i need to do to live more harmoniously maybe i'll give up the coffee and have hot water and lemon in the morning and maybe i'll start eating foods that are proper for my constitution they each start leading you down a road toward harmony as you progress down one of these paths you automatically progress down the other path as you live more harmoniously in this world you also begin to awaken as you begin to awaken you also live more harmoniously in the world until you have progressed so far down this path that the self-realized individual is the individual that is living perfectly harmoniously in the world. There is no difference between, between being a self-realized individual and being an individual who is experiencing optimal health and peace of mind. There's no difference between the two. Yogic language and Ayurvedic language are complementary to each other. And so you have the self-realized individual who may be experiencing, let's just say, a state of samadhi. In the lower states of samadhi in the world of yoga, you can still live here in this world. You're still in this world and you are being of service in this world. And you're remembering your true nature as spirit. And as you're existing in a sustained way in those lower, lower levels of samadhi, you're not out there you know, going partying and drinking and staying up all night you are living harmoniously in the world. And at that point, your work in this world is as a teacher, as somebody who is sharing the knowledge of love and the knowledge of light in this world. And, and that is who you are. And from the Ayurvedic perspective, as you are moving into harmony and you're learning to live in harmony and you're following the proper diet and the proper lifestyle, it is natural to just awaken because you're clearing away the obstacles to the light and to the love. So as you live more harmoniously, you love more deeply and you become more and more aware. Ayurveda uses the term swasta. Swasta is a term for optimal health, but what does swasta really mean? It means to be established in the self. So swasta means health, but swasta also means to be established, deeply rooted and solid in who you are as a spiritual being living in a body in this world. And so you are living in this world, you are experiencing swasta, optimal health and peace of mind. Your, your healing potential is maximized in that state because you're living harmoniously and you're simultaneously remembering your true nature of spirit and you're entering into the higher realms of yogic awareness. 
including the realms of samadhi and the various uh, stages of samadhi, until eventually, until eventually you achieve such a high state that there is really no more dharma to be performed. There's no more uh, purpose for you in this world. And then you are eventually liberated from the cycle of birth and death. And then you get more into philosophy about karma and how that gets exhausted through this process. But suffice it to say that it is the karma and the samskaras or tendencies that we have that are the obstacles that we face that, that, that prevent us from moving towards swastha, moving toward remembering our true nature as spirit, that prevent us from living harmoniously in the world. And so as we progress down either one of these paths, we're healing our karma. We are, we are removing the cloudiness that is preventing us from remembering our true nature as spirit until we have no more obstacles. And then we fully remember our true nature as spirit. We completely live harmoniously. Now, I want to emphasize that that's an ideal that is, is in our future as we we walk down this road. And it's so important that as we talk about these highest ideals of yoga, these highest ideals of Ayurveda, that we recognize that we're also human beings living in this world and that we have compassion for ourselves and for everybody else as we're going through this journey of awakening, of remembering our true nature of spirit. Because other people have forgotten and we too, to some degree have forgotten. I mean, after all, if we, if we had, had no level of forgetfulness, well, we would probably not be here right now. We, you and I are also remembering, we're still in the process of remembering and deepening our own connection to spirit and deepening our own connection to harmony. And so we become the guides, we become the teachers for others, but we too still have a longer way to walk on that journey. And so compassion for ourselves, for our imperfections, and compassion for everyone else, for their imperfections, is actually part of the journey. And today we're seeing such a lack of compassion in society. And so this is just reflective of how dark the times are, dark in the sense of, of preventing us from seeing the true nature, preventing us from seeing each other and the deeper, the deeper struggle that we're all experiencing together. Wow. Truly spoken as a professor of one of the one of the best and biggest Ayurvedic colleges. That's so beautiful, Mark. Clearly, um, you can all tell Mark really knows what he's talking about. Um, there's an old Vedic saying that says, um, to the extent that someone or something affects you is to the extent that is your karma. Uh, karma meaning action means that to the extent that someone bugs you, is irritating you, is to the extent that it is an opportunity for you to take a transformational action, karma, action, to free yourself from that pattern of behavior. You know, the old adage, and, and, to, and to do that, we must look through the window of compassion, as you say, and understanding, as you say, to see why are they, you know, projecting that version of themselves on the screen, probably because of their childhood and their culture and their trauma, and they're putting that on the screen. And maybe if you're, you know, you trample someone long enough, if you trample roses long enough, eventually they're going to grow thorns and they become thorny. And then you bump up against those thorns and you don't like it and you want to push them away and burn all those thorns. But you have to realize that if you push away those thorns or you, you kind of strike or try to throw thorns back, 
you end up uh, irritating them even further and they create even more thorns and they become more harmful. But if you realize why they have the thorns in the first place through the window of compassion, as you say, and begin to take action based on that compassion, then they feel all of a sudden safe in the sunlight of your, of your compassion. They feel safe to open up something that's more delicate and vulnerable with inside of them that's been armored up and they start to feel free. So what you're saying is that this is a journey, um, a journey that we can all take that these obstacles are the opportunities and we have to really look for them in this world in this time of in this time is to not to judge and push away and make wrong the opposition so called we have to understand why they are thinking and doing what they're doing and and reach through that through through the door with an open hand and open heart through the window of compassion and take action based on that and they will feel safe to actually let the truth of them out at the end of the day we'll find out that we're pretty much mostly wanting the same things really and i think that's a, a you know a beautiful uh beautiful understanding and, and and thank you for that i want to kind of drill into some basics you know ayurveda um some of the basics things that what put folks can do to get started um you know diet uh, you know, what's the best diet that I should eat? You know, uh, you know, alcohol, you mentioned, can I, can I drink alcohol a little bit? In Ayurveda and Chark and the textbooks, they talk about alcohol as surya, which is a, which is a spiritual beverage. And it's a slippery slope there, of course, where it can actually become quite harmful. But at some level, they do talk about it as okay. Meat is also another thing I love to hear your comment on. In the Chark and the Ayurvedic text, they talk about meat. It's more or less as medicine in a sense. And I wondered, um, you know, how do we how do we navigate the spiritual diet of being completely vegetarian to the Ayurvedic diet, which does include some meat in their textbooks or some alcohol for that matter in their textbooks, which seem to be go against kind of the spiritual side of diet, which would be no alcohol and no, no animal products and things like that. I'd love to hear your take on that, Mark. I know you've been asked that question before. Sure, John. Thank you very much. I'm happy to uh, respond to that. So let's talk about alcohol first. I think that's really important. And, you know, when we look at society as a whole, we, we recognize that alcohol is part of the culture. Uh, it's an incredible part of the culture. And, and when people go out to dinner, they, they enjoy a bottle of wine. When people are at home, sometimes they may be drinking beer or hard liquor at home. They might like a drink at the end of the day. If you were to look at the percentage of people that are engaging in some form of behavior that incorporates alcohol on a, on a daily basis, it would be an extraordinarily high number. If you go back even, even you know, a number of decades ago, it was part even of the work culture. You, it was okay to have, have drinks at work. You, know? you, you would just do that. It was part of the culture and, and it was uh, not, not frowned upon at all. So it's no wonder that we, we, we have a situation today where the toxic effects of alcohol are being seen. The toxic effects of alcohol are, of course, that it, it, it's an incredible irritant and toxin and poison to the stomach. It's an incredible toxin, irritant, and poison to uh, uh, the pancreas, to the liver, and to the functions of our body. So nobody could argue that, that excessive amounts of alcohol are anything but toxic for the body. Now, from a physiological medical perspective, it's the way it is. So what is really Charaka then saying when these ancient texts are, are, are talking about alcohol and giving some impression that it's okay? Well, there's really two 
very important concept, really three very important concepts that I'd like to talk about in relation to that. Uh, the first is that Chaka is very clear that, that alcohol is to be used for celebratory moments and not for burying the negativity or the despair of our lives. And so we have a culture in, in, in the world and in the United States where when I've had a tough day, what I really need is a drink. And Charaka would say, no, that's not at all what you need. What you need is to find your way back to harmony. Now, if you are among the company of those in a celebration, I, Charaka would say of sattvic company, Okay, and you're celebrating the divine, you might have a glass of wine in order to celebrate the divine. You might have a, a, a sip of that. And when you do, you will, you will, you will experience the, the joy and the light of uh, that beverage. And it will add to the uh, uh, contentment and happiness of that moment. But this is not something that they would recommend for someone who is feeling depression, somebody who is feeling anxiety, somebody who can't sleep. So many people are, I can't sleep unless I have a glass or two of whiskey before I go to bed. That would never be something that is uh, recommended in, in the Ayurvedic text. So, so, so that's the first thing. Al uh, uh, alcohol is, is, is considered to be a part of the, the celebratory uh, uh, moments of life and not part of the everyday experience or the burying of, of those uh, 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 feelings. Now, the other thing is uh, alcohol is, is in the texts are for those who are more sattvic. And so uh, what that means to, to consume it that way is that your mind and your heart are more clear to begin with which means you have a deeper connection to spirit, which means you're able to listen to your soul's voice, which means you know when enough is enough. We're not talking about overconsumption. We're not talking about excessive consumption. That was never talked about. In fact, it was talked about. It was talked about as a problem. It's talked about in the text as a very, very specific problem that comes from Rajas, that comes from Tamas. And so when an individual is more sattvic, they will imbibe just enough to raise the, the experience of the moment. And then they know when they're done and they don't overindulge. So there is tremendous control that comes with that. And so that's a very different experience than we're talking about in society. So, so it's not a matter of, uh, of uh, uh, just, just having alcohol. It's about the context in which you have it as a celebratory event, your capacity to live in a manner that allows you to stay connected so that you are only having the, the, the proper amount, not a toxic amount. And then Ayurveda also does recognize that, that, that alcohol can be a medicine. And so it is also used as a vehicle in certain preparations for herbs. And in there, then it's used in very small amounts and taken more regularly, but very small amounts, kind of like tinctures in the uh, United States or, or an, an ounce maybe of, of, uh, of uh, alcohol with certain herbs in it, maybe to enhance digestion, maybe to carry the herbs and their actions to the uh, nervous system where it might actually help with sleep, but it's not just the alcohol that's helping with sleep, it's the herbs that are cooked into it. And the herbs that are then prepared into it are also bringing some balance to that alcohol so that it doesn't remain a toxin in your body. So I think that's very important to understand because it is true that the 
the Ayurvedic texts recommend that, but it, it, it doesn't, you have, to, you have to really understand the text. You have to really read the full context in order to understand how it's being used. The same thing would be true of marijuana. Marijuana is also used as an herb in the text, but it's, it, it's never used from a place of excessiveness. It is used as a specific medicine, and it is, uh, you know, a, a, a particular preparation that is used. So yes, it was also used as a medicine. It's an herb. It has great value when it's used properly, and it also is uh, toxic to the body and the mind when it is used improperly. Alcohol is an even greater toxin. So, so I think that's important to uh, understand. And, and when it comes to meat, meat is, is definitely utilized in Ayurveda as a medicine. Everything in nature is utilized from an Ayurvedic perspective of, as medicine for the right person at the right time, in the right place, with the right condition, then meat can also be used as a medicine. And I think that's really very important because the Ayurvedic doctor, the Ayurvedic practitioner does understand who it's right for, when it's right, how much of it is right, and then how to prepare the medicine and then is able to monitor the results of utilizing that as a medicine, whether you're, you're, you're using bone broth as an example and you're boiling the marrow uh, of the bone and, uh, uh, or you're using, let's say, a, a component part of an animal uh, whether it's an animal's liver or an animal's bile, it all can be used as medicine. And Ayurveda says it's okay to use it as a medicine for, for saving a life, for allowing an individual to uh, perform their dharma in this world, to restore them back to, to health. But it shouldn't be used indiscriminately in a way that is disrespectful to the animals. I mean, let, let, let's be honest, we're killing an animal when we when we are going to take something from that animal. And although we, 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 we do that, we don't often think that the animal is conscious, sentient being that has a family too. And, 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 and there is a component part of, of the world in which we, we live in, where we have to live cooperatively with all of the species that are here on this planet, which means we utilize them at the right time in the right place in the right way. Uh, animals are also going to sometimes eat each other. We're going to eat plants from time to time. They are, they are uh, a vital part of our, our ecology as well. But if we abuse any part of the ecological system, there's going to be a consequence on the whole system. And so it really comes back to uh, living in harmony. Yoga teaches that if you consume the animals indiscriminately, then there is karma associated with that. That, that becomes a selfish action. Any action that we take that is gonna disturb the ecology is gonna be a selfish action. I'm doing it for me, so I'm gonna do it excessive. I'm gonna do it more than I need to, and it's coming from a place of my egoic choices rather than from the interconnectedness that I feel through listening to the whispers of my heart, listening to my soul's voice. And that creates karma and that creates suffering. And so I hope that begins to answer the question about alcohol and and meat. Yeah, no, this is a great, I think people really need to hear like your, your wisdom on this is, is just is priceless. It's great. You know, drilling a little bit deeper into that, you know, there still is um, kind of a, a dogma, you know, in the spiritual communities that, you know, meat is bad, alcohol is bad, it's rajasic or tamasic. And therefore, if you want to have a spiritual life or, or support a spiritual process, 
how you wouldn't do any of those things, that sure. the true sattvic life would be no alcohol, no meat, perhaps even no marijuana, um, uh, or, or all of that. So I, so I wonder if you could help kind of just drill a little bit deeper and give us what that, where that line is and what that line is about. So, so the challenge, first of all, with that line is that each individual looks at that line based upon where they're at. And then they judge according to what they see. They judge other people's behaviors and they judge their own behaviors. So I want to begin with the idea that non-judgment has to be uh, uh, embedded in any understanding of an action of oneself as well as another individual because what's right for one person is not necessarily going to be right for somebody else and when we judge an action as entirely good or entirely bad then we think it's good or bad for everyone and ayurveda would say that is absolutely not true that every action must be looked at according to the circumstances of the individual that is performing that act where they are in their spiritual journey, where they are in their physical journey, whether or not that action is uh, a dharmic in that moment or not, right? Um, let, let me just give you an, an incredibly gross example, something you know, really just, just dramatic. We, we all would probably say that, that uh, 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 drinking a, 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 a bottle of Jack Daniels in, in one sitting would absolutely be a disharmonious thing that is going to cause uh, tremendous harm. How could a sattvic individual do that? That individual certainly is not a spiritual person. Uh, they're going to be a drunken mess that passes out by the time they're done drinking that bottle. Now, supposing that person who is drinking that bottle is drinking that bottle along with 10 of the most powerful people in the world world and believes and understands that by drinking that bottle with all of them, by the way, who are Rajasic and Tamasic, that by drinking that bottle, they're all going to agree to use their resources of the world because now there's this camaraderie and, 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 and the Sophic individual has said, well, well, if I can get them on my side, we could use their billions of dollars to, to purify the water all through Africa and all through, through, through the world. And people will, will have less suffering in the world if we do that. And so the, the Sophic yogi says, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to drink this bottle of Jack Daniels with all of them. We're going to have this camaraderie, and they're going to agree to give billions and billions of dollars that can go toward the benefit of humanity. That would be a very selfless reason for drinking that bottle of, of liquor. And that selfless action produces no karma, no no long-term suffering for that yogi, okay? So in other words, we can't judge the action. We have to judge the circumstance in which the action is also taking place to fully understand it. And really we never fully understand it because we always see it in a limited way through our own egoic vision. So, so all, of that, all of that said, it's, 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 it's difficult to answer your question of, well, is it, you know, is it ever okay for a spiritual person to drink? Is it ever okay for a spiritual person to smoke pot? Is it ever okay for a spiritual person to, be, eat, to, to eat meat? The answer is that it really depends upon the circumstances. When an individual is taking an action from a place of dharma, 
when this is really what it all comes down to, when you are in alignment with the divine, when it is moving from above down and the inside out, and you are the instrument, and it is the power that is moving you to act harmoniously in the world for the betterment of society, then that action is, is absolutely free of karma and, and it is free of suffering. So yeah, the, the, the issue I think we have as much as it might be where somebody looks at somebody and says, oh, you shouldn't be drinking. How can you be doing that? You shouldn't be smoking pot. Is, is, is we need to stop looking at other people and we need to start looking more closely at ourselves. And we need to start to assess our own motivations. Why am I acting the way I am? Why am I angry at you right now? Because you're, you're a spiritual teacher who's having a drink of alcohol and I caught you. I caught you at that restaurant and, and, and you're having a glass of wine. So maybe what I need to look at is why does that upset me so much? Why upset me so much? And, and where's my judgments? And, and, and how is that part of my spiritual journey now to learn something from that about myself that can take me deeper? So I think that's the best answer I can give you. Yeah, I think I think that's great. And I think just I think it's just really great for a lot of folks. A lot of folks who are very spiritual, you know, maybe Vata constitution and <clears throat> maybe they were vegetarian and they didn't do it very well for a lot of years. And they ended up in a situation where they became a protein deficient. And they started to create issues, joint issues, blood sugar issues, things like that. And then they want to go into an ashram or a spiritual setting and they want to, they want to, you know, you know, really dive into the, you know, spirit. But they're being judged for what their body is saying they need. And they and they and there's a lot of judgment in a lot of spiritual settings where you just have to be vegetarian. That's just the way you, that's just the way you roll. Otherwise, you're not spiritual. And I think what you're saying is like, let's back up a little bit and you know, talk about um judgment and and how that can really be a dangerous road to hoe and inhibit spiritual process as opposed to support it particularly when people actually you know may actually need that as their real medicine because they were because that's maybe their constitution that may be their genetics and maybe that's because they're repairing they're recovering from an imbalance of that uh, of, of nutritional deficiency of some sort so now, i really ayurveda. think i yeah. ayurveda would say that it, you can absolutely use that food, that meat, consume that meat even for years to restore yourself. And you should also have a long-term goal of being able to live sustainably in the world. So you should see this period of time in your life when you're eating meat as a healing journey. Indeed, the long-term goal of Ayurveda would be to be a vegetarian. There is no question about that. The same thing would be true of yoga. The long-term goal is to do that, but you're not a bad person because you're not. So there is the issues of those who are judging you. And then there's the journey inside yourself to say, well, how can I restore balance? And once I've restored balance, how can I now live harmoniously within this world in the manner that is causing the least harm to others, including other animals? And so it's a combination journey. Neither one of them is right. The, the, the yogi and the ashram, is not is is not right when they say you're not a spiritual person because you're 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 eating meat and the person who is outside the ashram who says well I just need meat is also not entirely right if they think they're going to have meat for the rest of their lives we have to look deeper everybody has to look deeper the one consuming the meat and the one judging you for consuming the meat both have to look deeper the one judging you for consuming the meat has to look at their own judgments the one consuming the meat has to look at this and say, well, I'm doing this because I need to restore my balance, my harmony. I can be of the greatest service if I'm balanced. And when I am balanced, 
Now I have to look at how can I sustain myself and not cause harm to those animals. And this is this would be the teachings of Ayurveda and, and uh, also the teachings of yoga. Both of them would look at it this way. It's interesting because, you know, that when you put the long-term goal to be, and I'm just going to push back on this a little bit because I think people want to hear these kind of, this, 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 these ideas, um, you know, when you look at the long-term being a benefit, you know, goal to be a, a vegetarian, because that would be the more spiritual kind of, uh, you know, you've arrived in a way spiritually, you can actually not eat meat. Um, it definitely, you know, puts the, uh, it definitely, you know, makes people feel like, you know, for me to really be spiritual, I really have to get to that point. So people will, will, you know, beg, borrow and steal and push themselves beyond their actual limits to get to that place. And then oftentimes become, you know, a very unhealthy spiritual person who then has to go back and rebuild themselves with, or, and sometimes never, they never do. They just, you know, keep, you know, trying to find different diets from, from vegetarians to vegans to raw food. If they keep trying to find a diet they could actually digest because they couldn't digest X, Y, or Z because the whole process left them in many ways deficient. And I see this, I'm sure you see that, I see this in my practice all the time where I have to go back and do some rebuilding, but, but taking away the judgment where, I, where my goal is to be on that spiritual mountain and that spiritual mountain is with no meat and no alcohol, um, that sort of you know, really, really motivates a lot of folks to do things that they, that they wouldn't normally do uh, if they were truly true to their own body type and or through their needs physiologically and can really set people up for, um, you know, some imbalances and, uh, and, that, and that judgment. So I, that, you know, I, I wonder about that. And I wonder, you know, when I read Charka, I love your story about, you know, the, the, the Jack Daniels, because that was actually kind of written in Charka in some way, how, how you could actually, uh, you, know, it, it, you, know, uh, you know, use alcohol as a way to, you know, move the needle in a, in a political sense. Um, which I think is great. And I think from all those perspectives, it's great. And I think in moderation, it's, it's fine. And doing on the individual, the, the, that, the part that rubs me the wrong way, and I see it in my practice, I see a lot of spiritual folks in my practice, and they've been judged for doing it. And then they force themselves through this, this, this austerity that le leaves them uh, more out of balance than in balance and, and actually less spiritual than uh, they would have if they would have just really truly listened to the needs of their body. Um, I don't know if you can comment more on that, if there's more to say, um, but I do think it's, it is an important point. It's a sticky point for a lot of folks, you know? Well, you know, first of all, I would say, you know, I would ask the question and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a rhetorical question really, but, but who is more spiritual? The one who is judging you for drinking alcohol, but they don't drink alcohol, right? They don't drink alcohol, but they judge you for drinking alcohol or the person who is drinking the alcohol but doesn't judge other people at all. Who is more spiritual? Is, 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 the, is the action of drinking alcohol the action of not being spiritual or is the action of not judging the action of being spiritual? And really, yeah. the answer here is, I think, clear. Go ahead. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the last thing to go for a lot of folks on a spiritual path is, is, is that judgment, you know, my way, the highway has to be done this way. Otherwise you can't get through the, through the eye of the needle. Right. Well, um, I think what you're saying is, is, is right. You know, Mark, you're, you're so brilliant and, and, uh, you have so much knowledge. Um, it's just amazing. Um, 
I want you to maybe spend a few minutes talking about, you know, the folks that come to your college, talk to them, like if someone out there and they're thinking about Ayurveda, why would they, what are they going to get if they, if they, you know, if they, if they, uh, you know, open the door to Ayurvedic education, how would it benefit them? What would they get at your school? You know, help people understand what the next steps would be to get to your school, that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, just, you know, let us, let folks know, like, what are they going to learn if they come to your school? How does that work? Yeah, well, John, I think, first of all, the most important thing about the experience of somebody coming to, to any Ayurvedic school of quality is that they're going to have an experience of looking at themselves. And I think that's really very important and looking at their life and looking at their lifestyle and answering the question, who am I? And learning about that. And that's all going to allow them to become more established in themselves. And it's a journey to become more established in themselves, to move towards uh, uh, swasta one step at a time. And an Ayurvedic journey has to do that. It must support you to grow on your individual journey as well so that you can support other people to move forward on their journey. So an Ayurvedic education is really an education of the mind and the heart. And it has to be of both. It can't just be of one or, or the other. At the California College of Ayurveda, that's really the focus is to do both of these as, as well as can possibly be done. And we've been doing this now since 1995. We were the, the very first school of Ayurvedic medicine to open up outside of India. And so we have been doing this now for 20, I don't know, 27 years. And, and our students, our graduates are now in communities all over the country and they're providing Ayurvedic healthcare services. Some are doing it as Ayurvedic health counselors. Ayurvedic health counselors work with individuals on preventative care. They're working with people on, on cultivating an, a, a lifestyle that prevents disease and they learn about diet and they, they, they help people to follow a proper diet for their constitution. And, and then others go on further in their study and they become clinical Ayurvedic specialists. And clinical Ayurvedic specialists have a very, very broad and deep understanding of the clinical science of Ayurveda. They do preventative medicine, but they're also now prepared to support individuals who are sick. And so they're doing the clinical work. They're working with diabetics and they're working with people with heart disease and they're working with respiratory illness. Uh, they're making herbal formulations. Our school has uh, arguably the, the, the deepest herbal education that you can get at any Ayurvedic school in the United States. We have herbal gardens at the school with uh, as many as a hundred, uh, sometimes more than a hundred different herbs that are growing in our demonstration garden. And students who study on campus can participate in an herbal apprenticeship where they take the medicines all the way from seed, all the way through to cultivation and then uh, through medicine. They'll, they'll spend time in the herbal pharmacy uh, after they've, they've, they've cultivated those herbs, turning them into medicines. And so they have an incredible opportunity for those that are on campus. Of course, we also have students who are studying off campus. We have students who are uh, online, uh, online education, just like we're doing right now through uh, Zoom calls. We have our classrooms that are broadcast all over the world. So we have students all over the world as well. Uh, students who come to our school can go all the way through to becoming an Ayurvedic doctor. And when they become an Ayurvedic doctor, which was approved by the state of California in 2015, when they go through our program and become an Ayurvedic doctor, they're studying 
not only the deepest level of Ayurvedic medicine that you can study in the United States, they have additional classes in geriatrics and pediatrics and toxicology, but they're also studying the aspects of the sciences that are going to help them to integrate with the Western medical community. So they're studying laboratory diagnosis and they're studying it from a Western perspective and an Ayurvedic perspective. They're learning about how can I interpret those tests to help me better understand the patient from an Ayurvedic perspective. And they're also studying research methodology and they're learning how to become critical in the uh, reading of research. And so uh, they have all of these additional classes. While all of that is so important, also extremely important is the, is the internships. The internships at the college are really where you learn to open your heart to the patient and you learn to support individuals to uh, to transform their lives, to transform their lifestyles. Uh, it's, the internships, if you go all the way through to being an Ayurvedic doctor, are two years of internship where you'll be seeing patients and honing your skills with patients so that when you graduate from the California College of Ayurveda, I think it's one of the things that we're most well known for, is that you're so well prepared that you can go out into your community and you can open up your own practice and you can become successful because you've already seen hundreds of patients. And so with that, you have the experience, you have the knowledge, you've learned how to speak about Ayurveda as well. You've learned how to bring it to your community. And those are really just some of the opportunities at the school. There's also uh, Ayurvedic massage tracks and Panchakarma tracks There's Ayurvedic yoga tracks. You can become an Ayurvedic yoga practitioner. There's other tracks as well. Lots of workshops and seminars. Students can study yoga nidra and become a certified yoga nidra teacher. There's all different opportunities at the college, depending on what people are looking for. Uh, but the main focus of everything that we do from the moment we wake up at the college until the end of the day is Ayurveda. Ayurveda is, is what we, we, we eat, what we breathe, and what we drink at the college. Wow, absolutely brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant. Um, the college is amazing. It sounds so good. I want to go, uh, you know, and I, and I have so many of my students who are always asking so I can just say, watch this podcast, because that was a fantastic description of what Ayurvedic education at the California College of Ayurveda is all about. So, um, Mark, Dr. Halperin, uh, thank you so much. This has been so enlightening. I think you're going to help so many people uh, understand some of the basics of Ayurveda and really the true meaning of Ayurveda. And, uh, and uh, I just wanna thank you for everything that you're doing for the, for the profession. Uh, it's really so much. You, you are just, you know, the more I, I listen to you, it's just super clear how absolutely brilliant you are. And no wonder your college is, you know, is, you know, the first and still just, you know, the shining light on the, on the top of the mountain of education, Ayurvedic education in this country. So thank you so much for your time. We'll love to have you back um, uh, uh, soon. Maybe when your, your next textbook gets released, that next edition comes out, we'll have you back. I think we could, we could, we could uh, you know, pick away at your brilliant mind for quite some time. Mark, thanks so much for coming. And how can people get a hold of the California College of Ayurveda? What's the, just the, Give them some information. Yeah, sure. Thank you, John. Um, you know, people can contact us online at ayurvedacollege.com. They can write to us at info at ayurvedacollege.com and get more information about the school. Online, you can fill out a request form to get more information about the school. And a way to keep in touch with me is to join our Facebook group, which, which now has more than uh, 10,000 active 
people who are part of the Facebook group, and it's called Ayurveda, Yoga Nidra, and uh, Yoga Therapy with Dr. Mark Halpern. And so I would welcome you all to come and, and join our Facebook group. And thank you, John, for the opportunity to be here today with you and with your audience and, and giving me the opportunity to, to, to share the, the bits of wisdom that I have. And it's my great hope that the listeners of your, uh, of, of your program are touched at some level of their heart and some level of their mind, and that it helps to transform their lives so that they move toward greater harmony, greater health, and are able to be a vehicle of the divine love and the divine light. Thank you so much for inviting me today. You bet. Mark, thanks for coming. We'll do this again. This recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at lifespa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.